There we go. Push the button. The first time I can remember that I really, really blew it was when I was 16 years old. Okay. When I was 16, I, I got myself a car. It was this tiny two-door blue Mazda hatchback. And I called it Big Blue. <laughs> and this is 1998, right? So let's just say that the uh, stereo system in Big Blue was a little subpar. I had a Discman. Anyone remembers one of those? And I was trying to get my Discman to play the music through my car speakers, and I had this goofy cassette tape adapter thing that you plug into the dash and you plug that into your Discman. And, and I'm fiddling with this whole thing while I'm driving down the road, right? And so I was a distracted driver, that's putting it mildly. Uh, but I was like, listen, it's six o'clock in the morning. I am on a deserted road in eastern Colorado, a deserted two-lane dirt road, okay? There were legitimately only three other cars on the road. There's the car in front of me, okay, way in front, way in front. Um, but he stopped because he's going to make the left-hand turn. And the reason he stopped was because there was a second car who was oncoming traffic coming towards him that he, he had stopped for, right? And the third car was me. Anyone see where this is going? 50 miles an hour. Ran straight into him. The way my car hit, unbelievably, the front bumper of my car was unscratched. However, the rest of the front end of Big Blue looked like a compressed blue accordion. There was literally enough space between my front end and my bumper that you could stand in there and do jumping jacks. A lot of space. Of course, the car I hit was totally totaled. Totally totaled. That's a phrase for you. The guy that I hit, unfortunately, sustained major neck injuries. He had to wear a neck brace. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part was that his wife was the bus driver for the bus that I then had to ride to school every day for the rest of the school year. So imagine that commute. So yeah, so I've blown it before. And the Bible has a lot to say about when we blow it. Right? There's poems written about it. There's parables. And you people that don't believe the Bible, they love this stuff, right? Because it is truly some of the best literature ever written. We are in Exodus 34 here, folks. Exodus 34 is not a poem. It is not a parable. This is an explanation. Okay? This is getting at the mechanics, if you will, of who God is and how God works when we blow it. What you need to know about Exodus 34 is that it builds on what came before, which is Exodus 32, right? Matt, but he was joking, jokingly referred to himself as being in a bad mood. He was just preaching Exodus 32. That's what he did last week, and that's the context here, okay? And in Exodus 32, the author is super clear that God's people have blown it. 
This is the incident of the golden calf, the famous incident where Moses goes up to the mountain, he's getting commands from the Lord, the people are down below, and they worship this golden calf. Okay? The reason why it's so clear that God's people have blown it in Exodus 32 is because of everything that has already come before it in the book of Exodus. Right? He has saved his people, he's called them out of slavery. He's rescued them from the hands of the evil Pharaoh. He has brought them out of the wilderness, called him to himself, and made a special covenant just with them. And then they go and do this thing with the golden calf. Okay? So to be clear, this wasn't like a whoopsie. This wasn't like oops. Okay? Does anyone remember when... Draymond Green punched that other NBA player in the face. This was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. This was like that. Okay? Anyone remember when Will Smith took the stage on national television and walked in front of Chris Rock and slapped him in the face? Okay? This was like that. This was flagrant foul sin. This is sin of the first degree. Okay? Everybody knew that they were guilty, that they had blown it. That's the context of Exodus 34, okay? And in response to all of this, from verse 11 until at least verse 27 in here, we learn one thing about God, and that is this. He is not going to bend the rules in the face of his people's failure and guilt. I don't have all these verses up here because there's a lot of them, right? So let me just give you a sampling, okay? Verse 14, God says, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Anyone recognize that? This is a restatement of the first commandment. Verse 17, do not make cast idols. This is a restatement of the second commandment. Verse 21, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall rest. What's that? That's a restatement of the fourth commandment. Okay, there's plenty of stuff in here that's not just restatement of commandments. Exodus 34 has long sections of direct quotes, verbatim quotes of what God already said in chapter 23. Okay? So if anything is clear in here, it's that God is not going to change his rules. Now, admittedly, when you and I blow it, or at least when I blow it, right, it's not common for us to think along these lines. This is not how modern people think, right? This is the report of how they thought many, many generations ago, right? What modern people think when we blow it is something like this. Uh, I mean, I feel guilty, right? But uh, isn't guilt just a feeling anyway? Uh, there's nothing objective about my feelings, and so maybe I didn't really do anything wrong. That's a very common way to address 
to, to, you know, to respond to the reality that we've blown it. And if we call for backup on this view, by the way, we can find serious, intelligent people that will give us arguments for a, a moral philosophy known as emotivism, right? Which is the idea that whatever we're saying about morality, it's all subjective because all morality is subjective. Okay, listen, I, I know some of you. you. You're all very intelligent people. In fact, you, you make it kind of intimidating to stand up here and try to say something smart because you're all very intelligent people, right? So let me ask you, what's wrong with the phrase, all morality is subjective? Isn't that an objective statement? And doesn't that mean that emotivism fails its own test of meaning? Yes, this, this, this just doesn't work, friends. It, it, it doesn't work. And by the way, try standing in front of the guy you put in a neck brace and say, hey, listen, I feel really bad and all. <laughs> but I didn't really do anything wrong. You and I would show up like that, and chances are, we're going to need a second neck brace. <laughs> Look, here, here's the truth. God is not going to bend the rules of objective morality just so you and I can feel better about ourselves. That's not who God is, and that's not what he's going to do. And the clearest indication of this is in Exodus 34, verse 7. Now, I'm going to read this, but if you can hear it without squirming a little bit in your pants, I've got to be honest, you're not really hearing it. Because here's what it says. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so, where's God when I blow it? Well, one answer is this. He's the God of justice. He upholds objective morality. And he punishes those who break it. The end. Sermon over. Thanks, we're done. It's, uh, it's, it's early. You can get out a little early. That's great, right? You get out a little early? Yeah. Okay, I'm just, just kidding. We we're not going to end there. Everything I've told you is true, okay? But I haven't told you the whole truth. That's true, but that's not all that is true. Praise the Lord, that's not all that is true. Let's look at Exodus 34 a bit more closely, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then 
the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A couple important words in verses 6 and 7 here. I want to make sure you don't miss them. There's two pairs of repeated words here. The first word that's repeated is Yahweh. Okay, we see Lord, Lord. This is God's personal name. The name that he gave to Moses, his deliverer, before he called him to call his people out from slavery and bring them into you know, the wilderness and make a covenant with them. This is how he reveals himself. Now typically, in the Old Testament, when you see a pair of names, you translate that some way to emphasize endearment. So one way that we could translate this is we could say this. God shows up and he says, I am your dearest Yahweh. That's one way we could say this. And that's the first pair of repeated words. The second pair, a little harder to miss. Okay, The Hebrew word is chesed. That's fun to say, isn't it? Try saying that to your kids. Chesed. Try saying it at all. Good grief. It's translated in here, in the, the, what we read, it's translated as love. It's in verse 6 and in verse 7. Now, like I said, I know you guys. Some of you are really smart people. Some of you speak more than one language, right? Some of you are bilingual, bilingual. If that's you, then you know you can't always take a word from one language and find a single corresponding word in the other language for that word. It's not simple all the time. The Hebrew word chesed is one of those words. It is really, really hard to get it down to a single corresponding word in English. So, you know, what do you, what's a translator to do? You've got to pick one word, right? Because you can't just multiply your words. Love is a good word. Right? But to get at the concept, let me give you a phrase. Okay? Because we could say, when we see chesed, we could say this. Faithful and steadfast, loving partnership. That's driving at the meaning there. Okay? There's one last word here. Well, actually, there's a lot of other words here. Let's be honest. But in verse 7... It says that God is forgiving wickedness. It says he's forgiving, right? And to underscore just how forgiving God is, it uses every Hebrew word that there was for sin to explain God's 
forgiveness. What does God forgive? He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Three different words. All the words that we have. That's what God forgives. So, to sum up, what does God say when he shows up in front of his people in Exodus 34? His people who have clearly blown it. His people that are guilty and that, that know that they're guilty before they're gone. He shows up and he says something like this. I, your dearest Yahweh, I am your faithful, steadfast, loving, and forgiving covenant partner. He still isn't going to bend the rules. He still isn't going to rewrite the rules for his people. But neither is he going to change who he is. And who he is is beautiful. Who he is is someone absolutely beautiful. Okay, I gotta tell a story. I gotta tell a story from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I know it's a kid's book, but I'm not very mature. So I read kids' books, okay? This is a great story in which Aslan the lion, okay, represents God. And in the story, Aslan is killed by the white witch. He's killed according to something called the deep magic. Okay, which actually sounds a whole lot like the rules of objective morality. But there's two people that watch this whole thing go down. It's two little girls. Their names are Susan and Lucy. And they watch this terrible thing. After it's done, they, in their grief, they look away for a moment. And when they look back, Aslan is gone. And here's the story as C.S. Lewis tells it from here. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and showered him with kisses. But what does it mean? asked Susan. It means this, said Aslan. Although the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still. See, if the deep magic is the truth of objective morality, then you and I, we can be punished by those rules. We can be punished even with death. However, when we blow it, we just want something that'll take our guilt away, right? We just say that, and God says, no, I'm not going to bend the rules. But there is a magic deeper still, and it is the magic of God's covenant. Look with me, chapter 34, verse 10. I closed my Bible. Why did I do that? Verse 10, it says this. 
Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders. Never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. That's how God's responding to his people when they've blown it. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now technically what he's doing is he's just saying, I'm going to reinforce or reaffirm the covenant that I already made with you. Because that's what's in Exodus chapter 20, right? But to get at this, to show you that I'm not making this up, you can jump ahead with me to verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a, a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So what the heck is a covenant? What is that? Look, if, if you've blown it and you want to stand before a holy God and have something to say about your guilt... And if the magic of the covenant, right, if that is the deeper magic, then we have got to understand what the covenant is, right? A few years ago, an editorial actually ran in the New York Times on covenant. Do you believe this? It's written by David Brooks. And David Brooks gave a definition of a covenant for modern people. I think he's pretty good. I'm going to read it to you. He said this. A covenant makes you a part of someone else. It is a vow to serve a relationship that is sealed by love. That is exactly what God is getting at when he says, I am making a covenant with my people. Now, you and I, we don't deal much in covenants, right? This is not a word that we use. We don't know much about covenants, but we do know a lot about contracts. We have lots of contracts in the modern age, right? When the bank gives you a credit card or a loan or a mortgage or anything like that, you sign a contract with that bank, right? And that contract ensures that you are going to pay back all the money that the bank loans you and you're going to pay them interest, right? That contract is designed to make sure that the banks win. <laughs> That's what it's there to do, right? Nobody ever got rich making a contract with the bank. I'm just saying. A covenant is a little bit like a contract, but there are two really big differences. The first difference is this. A contract is designed to protect interests, right? Protects things, protects money, property. That's generally what a contract protects. A covenant, on the other hand, a covenant protects relationships. That's what David Brooks is getting at. He says a covenant makes you a part of someone else. That's what it is. It's like an adoption. It makes you a part of 
of that family. The second major difference between a contract and a covenant is this. In a contract, the weaker party loses. Right? You go to the bank, you're the little guy, you sign the paper, the bank wins. Not true in a covenant. In a covenant, the opposite is true. The little guy wins. You get in a covenant with God, you get in a covenant with someone who is faithful and steadfast and loving. You get in a covenant with that person, you become a part with that person. And when that person says, I forgive you, I forgive your wickedness, your rebellion, and your sin, you're the one that wins. We're the ones that win. That's how a covenant works. So, where's God when I blow it? Well, I've already given you one answer, right? The first answer, I don't know, maybe this is like the, uh, the standard answer, is God is the God of justice, and he upholds objective morality, and he punishes those who break it. That's the first answer. The second answer, the covenant answer, the answer with hope in it, is that God shows up and he says, I am your dearest Yahweh. You're faithful, steadfast, loving, and forgiving covenant partner. Two different answers to the same question. What's the difference between those two answers? The difference boils down to just one thing, and that's faith. So this morning, you may have guessed that I want us to live by the covenant answer. Stop me if that assumption blows your socks off. But that's what I'm here for, right? I want to encourage and implore you all to live by the covenant answer. I want us to believe it, all of us, from the tops of our heads to the bottom of our toes. I really do. And if you're here and you're like, I'm just not there yet you got to be wondering, what's, what's, what's he going to say? What's he have to say to me? What if I'm just not there yet? Well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. <laughs> I am not going to try to guilt you into believing this. That's not what I'm going to do. Think of the irony of that, right? The covenant answer is there to take away our guilt. Can you really guilt somebody into a covenant relationship like that? Did you really lay a guilt trip on somebody hard enough that they would say, oh, great, now my guilt is gone. Thanks for the guilt trip. It doesn't work. I can't guilt you into this. I'm not even going to try. If somebody has tried, gosh, I'm so sorry. What I will say to you is this. One day, you're going to blow it. And on that day, I hope and pray that you don't have to stand before God with that first answer and your guilt. Because you don't have to. We don't all have to do that. There is the second answer. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're someone and you're like, yeah, I, 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 I believe this. So I'm trying to believe this. right? I believe that God, as he's revealed in Exodus 34, I believe in this covenant as he's laid it out. That is great. 
guess what? One day you're going to blow it too. And when that happens, you know what's going to happen to all your really good faith? All that really good theology that you've got up in your head? You know what's going to happen to all that? Your good faith and your good theology is going to get forced through the meat grinder of your own failure. That's what's going to happen. But the good news is this. God did not give up on his people in Exodus 34 when they had totally failed. And he's not given up on you and me either. He is our dearest Yahweh, our faithful, steadfast, and loving, and forgiving covenant partner. Amen.